Today, we are so excited to welcome Dr. William Stickstrude and Ned Johnson, the co-authors of the fantastic book, The Self-Driven Child. Today, we have an important conversation that is critical for all those invested in education to hear. They talk to us about stress and why life is stressful. They have a conversation about happiness and shared delusion disorder while further exploring how motivation and control are so linked. We also chat with them about self-determination theory. This conversation was so rich and so powerful that we actually have split it up into two episodes. So definitely listen to this episode. And in a couple weeks, part two of our conversation with Bill and Ned comes out. In part two, we talk about self-determination theory even more. And we discuss the parenting shift that parents go through from helping kids feel safe to helping them learn how to be brave. We also further talk about in that episode how figuring out who is responsible for what is critical, how to offer and not force help or our experience on learners, and why giving control to kids to make decisions is essential in helping them learn to solve their own problems. We can't wait for you to dig into these episodes and to connect with us even more. If you are not on our email list, go to our website, www.learnsmarterpodcast.com and join our email list so we can connect even further and you get some cool behind the scenes stuff if you're on that email list too. Let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 159 of Learn Smarter, the Educational Therapy Podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts. And I'm Rachel Cap. And today we are so excited to have Dr. William Stixrude and Ned Johnson on the podcast. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. Yay. Did she say your last name right? <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. Okay, good. (laughs) Check me out. Little backstory. We tried to record this episode some weeks ago and we were having technical difficulties. So it's do over day and we're thrilled. Uh, It's going to be twice as great as it would have been the first time. Yay! (laughs) I thought of some really interesting things that said. (laughs) Yeah. Love to start off with having you guys introduce yourselves to our audience and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and who you do it for. I'm Bill Stixrude. I'm a neuropsychologist and I've been a clinical neuropsychologist for, I guess, 37 years. And I make a living by testing kids who have learning problems or attention problems or emotional problems or social problems. And I try to figure out what's right, what's wrong and how to help them. And Ned and I are authors of The Self-Driven Child, and we just finished our second book, which is coming out in August, called What Do You Say? I'm the father of two adult children. I play in a rock and roll band, and I've been practicing transcendental meditation for 47 years, twice a day, never missed. Wow. (laughs) I'm Ned Johnson. I'm not nearly as cool. I run a company called Prep Matters that helps kids get into college mostly and graduate school and that sort of thing. So college counseling and tutoring. And I'm a test prep geek. I've been since 1993, you know, 40,000 hours one-on-one helping people prepare for and combat an alphabet of standardized tests of ACT and SAT and GMAT and LSAT, all that kind of stuff. And my uh, other job where the bill is uh, writing these books about things we hope are a whole lot more important than standardized tests. I have a daughter who is a 17-year-old junior in high school and a son who is a first-year student in college. Nice. I have some follow-up questions. The first... Do you want to know their love story? 
Yes. <laughs> yeah, I want to know their love story too. Whenever we have partners on the podcast, because Steph and I do so much together, we love hearing how people sort of came together and how the partnership works. We love knowing who the idea person is and who the one which, by the way, it's me. And then <laughs> who's, the one, who's the one who's like good at executor. Uh, implementing and making a plan? The executor and that stuff. That'd be me. So we'd love to hear about <laughs> how you guys got connected. Well, we aren't sure. There's a couple of people that we think, in retrospect, introduced us about 10 years ago. And I remember one of the people, we had lunch together and just said, you guys would love each other. You know, and I'm 21 years older than that is. And we have very different professions. But we just think a lot alike. And these two people said, you'd really like each other. And you'd like the way each other's think. And so this one person said, you know, I got a lecture. I'm going to get you two to do a lecture together. So we started lecturing together initially about motivation, which is certainly one of the foci of the self-driven child, because so many of the kids we see have unhealthy motivation. Either they don't work very hard, they do as little as possible, or they're obsessively driven and kind of perfectionistic like that. And so we lectured about that. And then we started lecturing about stress. And I've been lecturing about the way chronic stress affects his development since 1998. And Ned, who just works with these really high stress kids all the time, it was really just a nice marriage. And a lot of the content in terms of ideas and research, stuff that I'd thought about in the first book. And Ned has this brilliant ability. He just has one story after another that illustrates these points. Also, he just makes connections brilliantly. So I'll bring up a point and he'll make a connection to something else. We just completely love working together. Hmm. Well, that's a very kind way of saying it. I think Bill is the brains of the operation. I'm here for the color commentary, mostly. <laughs> it's funny, you know, but Bill makes a really good point that 30 years of lecturing to families and schools and parents groups about the effects of stress, really at a deeply scientific level. And I really took all this stuff, applying it to, again, you know, kids getting through stressful things like, you know, applying to college and taking those infernal exams. And so uh, there was probably a good half decade anyway, when I found myself repeatedly saying, my friend Bill says, so my friend Bill says, so my friend Bill would say, and to Bill's point, I'm keenly interested in what helps kids do well, be less stressed, perform better, so on and so forth. But we all know, I mean, giving advice to anyone is as much of the art of how you say it as what you say. So as a guy who spent, you know, again, 40,000 hours one-on-one with kids, I've had the opportunity of I've kind of taken well, what I hope is a nugget of wisdom or some article I've read or some brilliant insight from my partner in Scribe Bill, and I'd present it to kids. And if they kind of go, eh, like, well, okay, that's not the way to say it. And it was sort of like a comedian sort of <laughs> workshop and stuff. I keep trying and trying. And when you get the kids going, oh, it's like, oh, that's the way I keep doing that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally get it. Yeah. You guys know that better than I, because it's the how is just as important as the what of the message. And that sometimes sells itself a little short. It's true that most of the stuff in the self-driven child I had lectured about or written about, but when we were trying to decide about what's the organizing principle for the ideas in this book, it was Ned who said, I think everything is related to a sense of control. And it turned out to be a beautiful way to organize. And once we adopted on that, then everything kind of lined up. It just turns out it's a really good partnership. I was also happy that <laughs> long after I'm gone, they can still be preaching this gospel to parents and <laughs> educators. <laughs> well, 46 years of meditation, you might be that lady in France who's what, 119? I'll shoot for it. Well, there we go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, this segues perfectly into why we wanted to have you guys on. We both love the book. 
And let's talk about stress. Yeah. Just the full disclosure in reading this, I'm like, oh, I see myself. Because in this book, I was the perfectionistic, highly strong. Chances are you have a human brain. Well, there you go. <laughs> so go ahead and kind of share with us a little bit about the different types of stress. The three different types, right? Right. And how some can be more productive, shall we say, than others. When people started studying stress initially on rodents and children and orphanages and this and that, and it was just like stress is bad for years. Then people started to really look at it in a more refined way. And the research that we looked at is pulled together by the National Scientific Council for the Developing Child. And they say that there's really three kinds of stress. There's positive stress and tolerable stress and toxic. And the positive is you have the jitters before you have to perform, or you feel kind of keyed up or amped up before you take a test, where your brain is really optimizing your performance in that way. You don't want to take a test or play a basketball game feeling kind of lackadaisical. You want to be amped up, but not over the top. And the tolerable stress is something really stressful. It could be losing a parent. It could be parents divorcing. It could be having to move in your senior year of high school. Things are really stressful. But you grow from it if it doesn't last forever and you have support to handle. Toxic stress is where it doesn't end or where something acutely stressful happens and you just don't have any support to deal with. It's that toxic stress that really has all the harmful effects, the increased cortisol levels. It's the chronic stuff or the really severe stress without support that seems to have the destructive effects on kids' development. In our own development. Hans Selye, who coined the term stress in an organism's reaction to environmental pressure that exceeds its capacity, he coined the term stress in 1936. So, you know, effectively, stress didn't exist until 1936. Except in engineering, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But that point about what positive stress, what he called you stress, like euphoria or euphemism, a good stress, it's really important because I think sometimes people think when they hear the term stress or hear us lecture about it, that we're trying to help people have lives that are stressless. And that's completely not the case in part because stress is what we experience kind of at the limit of our capacities. And this is how we stretch and grow ourselves. If you get yourself in a soccer match where everyone is a little bit older or bigger, stronger, faster than you are, that's going to be a little intense. But you don't get better by playing kids who are well below your ability. You get better by playing kids who are at your level or above. What's important about this, there's a bell curve of stress. And simply put, if the stress is too low, we don't perform at our best because we don't have to. There's no excitement. There's no butterflies. There's no jitters, as, as Bill talked about. But if the stress is too much, performance falls apart as well. And it's somewhere in that middle where there's what's described as optimal arousal where you're really being tested, it kind of the limit of your ability. It's not so low stress that it's boring or so high stress that it's overwhelming. And we want the opportunity to be there because that's work hard and then recover, work hard and recover. When it's way beyond our ability, we have a problem. And as Bill pointed out, with toxic stress is way beyond our ability or chronic stress where it's unrelenting. That's one of the real concerns we have about kids, particularly in high school, who are at a super high level of stress unrelentingly, because that's kind of how you know soldiers come back from war with PTSD. It's not the battle that undoes them so often. It's this hyper state of vigilance, this constantly being on guard. And we just don't want to be there. And last point on that, we know that if I as a person 
kids as people, if they can regulate how much they take on, if they're in charge, if they have that sense of control, then they will willingly turn up the level on the treadmill and push themselves like, how fast can I go? If they know that they can turn it down when they feel like this is way too much, it's when you feel like you don't have that ability to regulate it, that low sense of control of the stress that you're experiencing, that we get the really undesirable outcomes we're just trying to shield the kids from. You know, I think it's really interesting too that you talk about how the result of stress is the disorganization in the brain. And I think that is something that is a really tangible way to sit there and describe like when you walk into a room and it's clean versus when you walk into a room and there's stuff everywhere and you don't know where anything is or how to like function in it. And I think talking to kids about that in a way that makes sense to them. And I think what you're saying about stress can be good and productive and it can be toxic, but yeah, finding that middle is exactly the Goldilocks and the three bears, right? Mm -hmm. Just where's that little middle stress that's productive enough but not going to be harmful and so disorganizing of the brain, right? Our whole society, our usual level of stress is way too high. Heightened too much. Mm -hmm. Have a chronic low-grade level of stress. It's not healthy. Not that we want to try to remove all stress from our lives. We want a lower baseline <laughs> level of stress. And certainly, Amy Arnston, who's one of the world's experts on stress, says that stress mimics ADHD in the sense that when you're stressed, you can't think straight. You can't put things in perspective. Your, your thinking is very disorganized. And she also says the prefrontal cortex, which mediates attention and the executive functions and organization, is the Goldilocks of the brain because it needs this very delicate balance of neurotransmitters to run well. And you think about how easily you're distracted. If your boss says, I need to see you at three o'clock in my office, you can't think about anything else the rest of the day. Even some kind of minor stressor makes you impossible to think really clearly about anything else. Well, I guess quickly, you guys talk about four things in life that are stressful. Can you just run down those for me? This is Sonia Lupian, who heads the Center for Studies of Human Stress up in Montreal. She's just terrific. And the acronym that she uses is NUTS, of like what makes us nuts, right? And so N is novelty. So, you know, hey, it's not just the coronavirus. Gosh darn it, it's the novel coronavirus, right? And that's that's not such a great thing. U is unpredictability. This is why traffic's so hard. If you knew that you were going to be 10 minutes late and there's nothing you can do but apologize or an hour or two, you would make a plan for that. But when you don't know whether you'll make it or not, really hard because you have to kind of live in two different spaces at once. T is perceived threat, which again, for this COVID thing, for most of us was sort of threat to ego. And this is a really important thing for, especially for kids in school, because if they feel that their work is school, you know, if you have to read out loud in second grade and everyone else reads and you can't, all you're just trying to get past that because everyone's snickering at you. This level of stress is highly individualized. And oftentimes we can't perceive how it feels for other people. And then S is a sense of control. And it's that low sense of control that she and, and all these wonderful neuroscientists point out is the most stressful thing in the world. You know, if we have new situations, if we have unpredictability, if we have things that feel threatening, but we have a plan for those and we have the sense that I can do something and I'm not helpless or hopeless or powerless in the face of these things, we can handle them. This is part of the research that we got at that really formed the backbone of our book being about a sense of control. Because again, we want kids to try new things. We want to try new things because they can have that you stress, that positive stress and be exciting. But in order to go 
go on a new adventures and to handle unpredictable and scary things where we grow. If we have a sense of control, then we can not just not shy away from those things and run away from them, but we can actually take on healthy stress and do them in ways that are courageous. We're facing that dragon, but we know we've got a sword and a shield to handle it. I love the sword and the shield to handle it. That's great. Yeah. What a great way to describe it. A little D&D for my youth anyway. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. That takes us right into when you're talking about the stress and the sense of control with high-performing kids. Yeah. (laughs) And if you couldn't hear it, Ned just took a big sigh. They're stressed and they're lacking motivation. They have extrinsic motivation. Yes. They have motivation that's all about fear. And so it's not the excitement of earning this thing. It's the fear that if somehow I slip... If somehow I make a mistake, if somehow I take an extra hour of sleep, if somehow, if I ever let my guard down, that everything that I've worked for will disappear. And we're back to soldiers. You never let your guard down when you're on patrol because you don't know where that IED can be. And it's terrible, not just terrible for soldiers. And these are the bravest men and women on the planet. It is brutal on developing brains because we know that apart from birth to age two, the great neuroplasticity in, in developing brains is during adolescence. And for kids to be stress for four years straight, it's just such a terrible thing. And this is, you know, people often, why is the mental health so hard in college? Well, we can talk about that later in sleep deprivation, but part of it is just that four years of being under stress when you're developing your brain, you've developed a brain that you then carry into the college years and into adulthood. It's really a problem. You know, our feeling on this is that we want kids to be as academic as they can be. We want them to be as successful as they can be, but we want them to do in a way that they want to be successful, not feel that they have to be successful. Because this is a big change in the neurotransmitters that are coursing through your brain. Dopamine, it's excitement, like, oh my gosh, wouldn't that be so cool? As opposed to feeling like I have to, which is a drip feed of cortisol, which shrinks the hippocampus and the connections between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. I mean, it's equivalent to the effects of repeated blows to the brain, right? And we used to think, oh, you just rang your bell. Well, now we know that that's not true. And one of our great hopes is that in 10 or 20 years, or maybe earlier than that, if we're lucky, that the world will take seriously the effects of chronic stress on these really malleable and vulnerable young brains. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation published a report in 2017. It was discussing the causes of mental health problems in young people. And the first four were poverty, trauma, discrimination, and excessive pressure to excel. And the research on kids in high-achieving schools suggests that they're at much higher risk for anxiety, depression, eating disorders, substance use disorders, and they continue to be even into their middle 20s or beyond. And it's partly this excessive pressure to excel, and it's partly, and we talk about this in our second book, they don't feel as close to their parents. And it's that lacking that support to manage the stress. It seems to be such an important factor in kids who come from affluent families in in really high-achieving schools. And from our point of view, if kids want to go to Ivy League schools or really elite schools, go for it. That's great. But the crazy idea is that somehow, if you don't, you're going to have a C-plus life. And it's just delusional, this idea that somehow some of the people that we work with have this idea that the most important outcome of all your childhood and adolescence is where you go to college. (laughs) This wise person that may have introduced Ned and I 10 years ago says it's much more important who you marry is much more important than where you go to college. And certainly there's much more research to support that proposition than the other. That makes so much sense. 
And it's so true, I think, Steph, too, in our personal narratives, because you're looking at two high-achieving people, and, you know, you're talking about the four years. My academic experience was seven years of intensity, because it was a middle school and high school experience, and I went to a good school, and that was the goal. And what it sort of did to me once I was there was left me with a lot of work to undo, especially as I was gearing up to graduate and didn't know what was next. And I remember having this conversation with my dad about, we had a plan until age 22 and now I have no plan. And the fear and the anxiety, I described it as looking as like a big dark gap in my future. It was too much focus on the name brand school not enough focus on what I was going to do. And it took 10 years to figure it out after. Mm. I'll let you know what I want to be when I grow up, when I figure it out. (laughs) It's funny. In our second book, we have a chapter about talking to kids about the pursuit of happiness. Bill's in Dallas and he's talking to a bunch of super academic kids at the elite independent school there. And he asked them, how many of you want to be happy? As adults. Yeah, as adults. Thank you. As adults. And they kind of sheepishly raised their hands like, "Uh, uh, yeah. And he said, well, what do the adults tell you about what helps or what's necessary to be happy as an adult? And they all said variations of, well, we've been told that if we get into a good enough college that everything else will fall along and be taken care of. And of course, and that'd be lovely if it's true, but if that were the case and the, you know, the folks at Yale and Princeton and Harvard with Stanford, they'd be the happiest people on the planet. And yet they have mental health issues that are as, as bad or worse than anywhere else in any other school in the country. And so we actually looked at the research of what do we know about happiness? And so Martin Seligman, who founded the, really the study of positive psychology out of the University of Pennsylvania, talks about PERMA. And so it's P is positive emotion, E is engagement or that flow experience. R is relationships, M is meaning, right? What actually purpose? And then A is accomplishment, right? Achievement and getting the great job and getting the accolades and getting a good college. These are all wonderful things and they can make you happy. But it's only one-fifth of the equation. And so the problem is when you look at your classmates, not as friends and lovers and people to blow off stress with, but as competition, right? And things that give you real sense of meaning or engagement, but it's never going to help you get into college. Well, why would I waste my time on that? We one by one peel off all these other things that are a source of really support, a source of our own happiness. And the simple gist of it is you cannot meet non-material needs, relationships, engagement, meaning with material accomplishments, money, accolades, prestige, going to college. And so it's such a terrible disservice we do to everyone, including ourselves, thinking that, oh, if I just get this new thing, if I get one more, then I'll be happy. It's like being a drug addict. Actually, there's a, <laughs> there's a story in the book. I worked with this girl this years ago, incredibly academic. She got a 1590 on the SAT and 1600 scale and burst into tears. Not tears of joy, by the way. Mm. And I looked at her and I'm like, you're a crack addict. And she looked at me like, what are you talking about? And I said, you've had 438 consecutive A's. If you got a C, you'd burst into tears. And she looked at me, she said, I would never get a C. And when I tell this to students, they all sort of chuckle. But no, 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 here's the thing. There was no swagger. There was no confidence. There was no, oh, Tudor boy, you don't know who you are dealing with. 
It was abject fear. And so I ran this whole thought experiment of her having to arrive at class for a test. And and basically the trees had conspired against her and pinned her car. And she showed up there 10 minutes late and she was shaking. It was such a fearful thought for her. And I just looked, I said, look, (laughs) I think you may have some work to do. So in the way that you talk about Rachel and I ran into her a couple years later, she was a sophomore at Yale and I ran to the grocery store and I'm like, oh my gosh, how are you? And she's like, I'm great. And I was like, in back of my head, I'm like, really? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm so, <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that. She said, you might be interested to know, I finally learned how to relax. And I said, well, that's awesome. H- how exactly? Pot. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and this is part of the reason, as Bill talked about before, we know why there's such a huge incidence of substance abuse, because if we don't have a healthy way to pursue and achieve happiness. If we don't have healthy tools to lower our own stress, to manage our own stress, we will invariably turn to unhealthy ones. There's a wonderful book coming out this week by uh, by Jess Leahy called The Addiction Inoculation that basically makes that point. If you don't have healthy ways to manage stress, you'll turn to unhealthy ways. So if we wanna help kids avoid substance abuse disorder, we have them lead lives through high school and middle school that are healthy, that are balanced and have a balance of at least as many outflows of stress as there are inflows of stress. And that can make it much easier for them to avoid picking up, taking that first drink or that smoke, that first smoking pot to relieve these hard feelings. Wow. I think back to so many experiences growing up and people that I know and whatnot. I also went to a very academic school where people ended up, you know, over 20 years later after high school. It's so interesting. And I actually ran into a girl that I was very close with in high school just about two weeks ago on the street. And we were talking about high school and it was just so fascinating that that feels like six lifetimes ago now. (laughs) And just how different life is now. It's so true that we just sit there and all of the things that you thought that were important aren't. And the experience and trying to figure out how to manage your stress is a struggle. And it's not something that we teach. And it's hard. Or model, I say, by the way. Fair. The part that really resonated from this conversation for me is how much more important the partner you choose in life is than the college that you went to. We should be having these conversations with teenagers about healthy relationships, healthy boundaries, and how you want to be treated and how you ideally will treat somebody else. That conversation can yield so much more for their quality of life. Mm-hmm. There's an article that was built, was this in the Times or the Post? I can't remember. We, we have this in a book about young women at, I believe, and Bill, correct me if it's it, Penn in Princeton, and talking about how they wouldn't have relationships because the time needed to invest in a relationship was as much time as taking another course. And why would they do that? Because if they took another course, they could get a better job and make more money and da 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 as though having more money can fill that need for happy relationships. I mean, <laughs> I always joke, my best friend and I, who are still in several, we just couldn't love the guy more. And there were, there were people in college who were summa cum laude, and there are people who are magna cum laude, and then the people cum laude. And then my friend Don and I are laude laude, as we like to describe ourselves. But <laughs> the one great gift was, you know, I had a lot of stuff going on and I managed to get through college in ways that were not academically that successful, but were what I needed to be to be psychologically whole. And the one great outcome, I was put together enough from a happiness perspective 
that this freshman, a couple of years behind me in school, thought that I was cute. She was probably concussed at the time. And, you know, I started dating her in January of her freshman year. And that was 1992, right? I'm 25 years of marriage this year. And I mean, you can pick anything. There's nothing, you couldn't pay me enough money. There's nothing I could do that would give me more happiness and joy than spending my life with this wonderful person. And so exactly the point when we, when we, when we think it's a mistake to spend time finding partners, when we think it's a mistake to, to spending time with friends. I mean, Bill and I were working on a third book and we were just talking with this woman who's helping us write it. She said, you guys probably don't need me to do this. You guys could do this yourself. And we looked at her and we were trying to reach through the phone and go, psh, 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 psh. are you nuts? We're like the three musketeers. There's nothing. I mean, it's, it's best part of our week is spending time together talking through this stuff. And again, I help people get into college. We want people to be successful in, their, in school and in careers and everything else. But if you think that you should sacrifice your friendships and your relationships for that, you can end up with a lot of stuff and having nothing. You know, what's interesting is as I was saying, why aren't we having these conversations about healthy and hearing your story and all that? If you had tried to talk to me about this at 16, 17, 18, 20, 21, 22, I would have felt it was a sexist conversation. That's fair. We're raising women to be strong, independent of their spouses and their marriage relationships or partnerships. And that's how I would have interpreted it. You know, I remember my dad tells a story that like in seventh or eighth grade typing was offered as a course in my middle school, high school. And he was insistent. And my dad never really was like, you are going to do this ever. But he's like, no, you're going to take this typing class. And I looked at him and I'm like, I'm not going to be a secretary. <laughs> I knew where that was going. Yeah. And I said that at like, in like seventh or eighth grade. And by the way, thank goodness that he forced it because I'm a great <laughs> typist now and I need it. It's a skill I need. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> But that's not where my brain was at. Yeah. And it's different now that where women so far surpass males academically. But one of the things we say is that we want kids to be as successful as they want to be in adult life, but we want them to be able to enjoy it. And the thing is, if you're chronically tired in, in self-driven child, we say we kind of made up a formula for becoming depressed and it's being too tired and too stressed for too long. Hmm. People say that depression scars the brain in a developing brain. It makes changes in the brain that even if you get treatment, get better, you still maybe still have more insomnia or you ruminate more, places you at risk for more depression. And so it just didn't make any sense to us at all for kids to be sculpting the brains, maybe to achieve material success, but just not enjoy any of it. We were lecturing in Stanford out in Palo Alto a couple of years ago. The week before they were there, two Stanford undergraduates had committed suicide, including one who was an Olympic athlete, Olympic champion. Part of what we want to do is, is help people understand that the most important priority really is not going to college. It's learning how to live a healthy, sustainable kind of life. And I just think the kids just get all the wrong messages about what's important. Just to segue, that's coming from the parents. It's come from schools and parents and law firms that'll only interview people from top 10 law schools. And uh -huh. for anyone who's listening to this, we are very consciously, very purposely in our book and in our talks, don't want to put the blame on parents right. because so often they're working in what they believe is their kid's best interest. 
We're not, in part because stress comes from every possible direction. And so you can't blame this straw as the one that broke the camel's back as opposed to the other ones. Right. But to echo Bill's point about, you know, law firms and college admissions and, you know, popular culture and everything else, what's called the DSM-5, which is the Manual of Psychological Disorders. In the new DSM-5, there's something called shared delusional disorder, which we love. And simply, you know, this idea that, well, everybody knows that if you go to a better college, you're going to have a better life than if you go to a not. We all choose to believe that. Well, many people choose to, to believe that in, in part because we take our cues from people around us. And so it does take courage and purposefulness to really say, well, is that right? And in some ways to talk back against fear-based thinking. I mean, one of the wisest things that Bill told me, you know, years ago, he said that fear-based thinking rarely leads to good outcomes. And I remind myself of this all the time because I have a small business and I get challenges and people leave and all kinds of stuff. When I spin myself up and get crazy, my friend Bill says, you know, fear-based thinking, right? And it's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go meditate for 20 minutes and I'm going to calm my own nervous system down and then see what my perspective on this is. But it's hard because Rachel and Stephanie, for both of you, if you were high achieving kids, high achieving students, then my expectation is you spent your time with other high achieving students who were also probably stressed and stress happily is contagious. So if you're worked up and stressing out about this test, my amygdala goes, oh shoot, maybe I should be worked up about this too. Because the threat detecting amygdala part of our brain doesn't reason. It simply perceives and reacts to things that might be threatening. And so if everyone else is crazy about college, maybe that's what I should be as well. So we don't want to blame parents, but we do want it to be very thoughtful about where we take our cues and questioning things. Is that really true? And that's why in the Self-Driven Child, we have a chapter called Alternate Roots. And it's about all of these people who have wonderfully rewarding, successful lives, but not on the straight and narrow for, you know, elite school to elite graduate school to elite job to whatever, whatever. Because if we're honest with ourselves, almost everyone has meandered. And Bobby was so, I'm going to let Bill tell his story about some of his pitfalls on his journey here, pointing out that if you were a family in DC, and I'm going to brag on him, if you're a family in DC who has a kid who is complicated, not just garden variety, ADD, not that I'm dismissing that, but really complicated learning neurological profile, you will wait more than a year to talk with Bill because there's nobody better. There are really wonderfully talented people in DC and I don't want to dismiss them, but there's nobody better than Dr. William R. Stickshoot at understanding complicated kids. But he didn't start out, you know, as... William, you know, so <laughs> talk about some of your <laughs> misadventures. Oh, I'd be happy to share my, my humiliating failures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the kind words, my friend. But I grew up in Seattle. I was a C plus student in high school and I overachieved because I only needed to 2.5 to get into the University of Washington. And I had no desire to do anything other than go to the University of Washington. But what happened with me was my father died at the very end of my senior year in high school. And I had a low two-point grade point average in my senior year. And when my father died, it kind of woke me up and I kind of started to take school more seriously. So I started college as basically a straight-A student. I worked really hard in college, but I got extremely anxious and for various reasons and family reasons. I got extremely anxious. And so I got myself into the top PhD program in English literature in the country at Berkeley. 
And I got down there and I literally, I went two straight quarters, 20 weeks without turning in a single assignment. <laughs> and the first quarter, they gave me incompletes. But second quarter, this one guy flunked me so I couldn't go back. And I thought that my whole life had gone up in smoke. And it took me about two months to realize that it was the best possible thing that could have happened to me. Because I always felt like an imposter with other with kind of literature types. It wasn't me. And I had a four-year-old niece who I just loved after I flunked out of graduate school. I took a job typing. <laughs> there you go, Rachel. There you go. <laughs> Full circle moment. Tell your dad he was so right. He knows it. I used to have typing pools. And I was in a typing pool, and I got fired after two weeks. And I was working in a warehouse, just, just feeling or just having no idea what I was going to do. And I had a four-year-old niece who I loved being with. So I said, well, maybe I'll go into education. So I got certified as a teacher, but I was a terrible teacher. The one year I taught full-time, I had a headache every Monday. And honest to God, 1977, I haven't had a headache since. <laughs> and it was not the right thing. And luckily, I failed my way into something where I'm working one on, I'm pretty good one-on-one -on -one with kids. I have no group management experience or skill at all. So I'm just saying that for me, the idea that somehow, if you ever get off the path of high achievement, that you can't have a good life, or that somehow somebody from graduates from the University of Washington is inferior to somebody who graduates from Yale. I mean, I've had a completely charmed life. Just everything goes my way. And the idea that somehow my life would have been better if I went to a top 10 college, this seems to me to be absurd. Yeah. And look at you. <laughs> and the walls came crumbling yeah. down. That's the point. <laughs> yeah. I was talking with these parents who are the nicest people I've ever met. And they're both Yale graduates. And I said that a lot of parents have the idea that people who go to elite schools are, are really better people. And they said, well, we kind of think that. <laughs> well, okay. um, as Eleanor Roosevelt felt, you can only, other people can't make you feel inferior without your permission. You know? And for me, it just doesn't make any sense at all. Because so many of the students I work with, virtually all of them, they have some kind of learning problem or ADHD. And just the most motivating thing I can tell them is you could flunk every single one of your classes. If you decided that was a bad idea, I want to get an education. You go to community college for 30 credits, which is two semesters. Then you can apply to most of the colleges in the country without showing your high school transcript. Mm -hmm. And when I tell them that, I give them an accurate model of reality as opposed to your grades follow you the rest of your life kind of thing. Right. But I tell them that it motivates them to work hard. The last couple of chapters in the book are about wanting kids to have an accurate model of reality. There's so many ways in which you can find your place in this world. And it doesn't require being a valedictorian. And we encourage kids, as Ned was saying earlier, we encourage kids to do as well as they can and learn as much as they can and get as educated as they can. But the idea that there's one path to being successful or that it's always a straight uphill climb is completely out of touch with reality. I'd like to go back to the idea of self-driven child. There's so many kids that are getting this idea and parents that have gotten this idea generations before that this is the way to do things. And you'll be happy and successful like we've talked about. But a lot of having what you guys talk about, having control as the student is so important mm. to their success and their development and all of that. Can you guys talk a little bit about why it's so important to give the kids control? I'll talk a little bit about the mental health part. You talk about the motivational part. Is that okay? Great. So yeah. the two problems that we tried to address in the self-driven child is all these stress-related mental health problems and what we consider to be these kind of dis disordered motivation in some of the kids that we see. And the link to solving these problems 
was a sense of control. Because as Ned was saying earlier, one of the most stressful things in the universe is a low sense of control. A whole line of research for 40 years showing that when you have the experience of being able to control stressful situations, you become almost impossible to stress because you just go into coping mode as opposed to freaking out kind of mode. The basic research, Steve Mayer at the University of Colorado, rat A, rat B, they're in plexiglass cages, their tails outside the cage with a little electrode on it. There's a wheel inside the cage. Rat A gets shocked, discovers when he turns the wheel, the shock stops, has that experience several times. When he's turning the wheel, the prefrontal cortex activates, dampens down the stress response, and he just goes into coping mode. Rat B, tail gets shocked, wants it to stop, turns the wheel, nothing happens. And it stops when rat A turns the wheel, only when rat A turns the wheel. Rat A becomes almost impossible to stress after having this experience several times because just I, I can handle stressful situations. Even when you disconnect the wheel, he still turns it and he's not very stressed. He just goes into coping mode. Rat B becomes a nervous wreck. Anything stresses because he didn't have that experience of control. And that's why we want kids as much as possible to be able to solve their own problems. You know, if a kid comes home and, and it just flunked a test or just got dumped by his girlfriend, we want to remind ourselves whose problem is it? Because we want the kid's prefrontal cortex to activate, to go in and solve the problem with our support if necessary. But it's that, that experience of being able to handle stressful situations that gives you the confidence that you can handle stressful situations. I was out in Houston. I was lecturing about our book. And I happened to mention an elite school in D.C. And this woman came up to me after the lecture and said, I'm a therapist, a psychotherapist at the Menninger Clinic. This is this wonderful mental health uh, program in, in Houston. And she said, we know this independent school in D.C. really well because these kids get into top colleges and they can't handle it emotionally. So they take a medical leave and they come here for therapy. And she said, two of the one, they simply don't have any experience running their own life. They've been jumping through all the hoops. It's kind of like you're suggesting, Rachel. I've jumped through all the hoops to do this. But when they get to college and it's not just jumping through hoops anymore and there's a lot of smart kids or they just solve their own problems, but they just haven't had enough experience and they can't do it. And so from emotional mental, you just think about it. If you're anxious, your thinking is out of control. If you're depressed, forget it. You have no sense of control at all. So a sense of control is hugely important for kids to develop in order to have mental health, in order not to be inordinately anxious, not to be vulnerable to depression, not to be turned to drugs or alcohol to manage stress or to provide the illusion of happiness. So from a mental health point of view, it really is key. And part of the reason is that we think about this sense of control in two dimensions. One is that subjective sense of agency or autonomy. This is my life. And we want kids to have the sense, this is my life, and I'm going to get out of it what I put into it. But it's also the brain state that supports that, which is that prefrontal cortex regulates the amygdala, that regulates the rest of the brain, and can keep things in perspective. And when you're in your right mind, you have a healthy sense of control, your brain state is in this very healthy state where the prefrontal cortex is regulating everything, putting things in perspective so that you don't get too stressed and you can stay focused, you stay in the moment, you stay productive. So from a mental health point of view, it's, it's huge. To emphasize one point on that, you know, if you go back to the rat A and rat B, one of the things that's so hard for us as parents is allowing our kids to make decisions, even if they're not the best ones, because we want them to think through the pros and cons, allowing them to make mistakes, including, you know, messy situations and allowing them to solve those as best they can. Because again, that's how you get the wiring of the prefrontal cortex to regulate this healthy regulation of your own stress response. So you have this resilience and this courage going forward in life. The hard part is that means for us as parents who love our kids so deeply, 
that we have to do less to create space for them to do more. And it's just hard to do because we're basically then by design having to give up slot A rather than being in charge and move over to the receipt of rent. And we're just along for the ride with our kids. And I mean, <laughs> my daughter just turned 17. So we're going through all the driving and, and for anyone who's taught a kid to drive, you have shifted about three feet from driver's seat to passenger, it's three feet, but boy, oh boy, is the difference in perspective more than three feet right? It's hard, right? It's hard. Uh -huh. So a whole part of both books is really about recognizing this is not always easy, what we're asking parents to do, but it is an enormous vote of confidence and trust in our kids and an enormous gift to them to allow them the experiences that they need to have these healthy brains that we want for them to have successful lives. It's also, as Bill has mentioned before, simply vital to motivation, now, I'll talk really quickly about motivation. There's what's called extrinsic or external motivation versus internal or autonomous motivation. And so, you know, Rachel, you're talking about being a top student in school. Part of your experience was likely much more externalized than you might have wished it to be, that you might have been deeply engaged in your classes and really enjoying all those papers and conjugating irregular verbs and blah, blah, blah. But it might also be that you were staying up way too late, you know, proofing the paper for the umpteenth time and looking at flashcards for the eighth right up to the very second because you were so concerned about getting one more A from the teacher, right? And so external motivators are carrots and sticks, right? If I do something great, I get the A, I get that carrot. And if I don't do what I'm being asked of me, I get dinged or I make my parents take my cell phone away or whatever. And those motivators were great short term. <laughs> <laughs> and they never, never, never morph into inner drive. And so we, Bill and I were just on a talk last night with a really wonderful independent school here in the DC area. And there are all these parents who are having a hard time because their kids are so, so not into school and really finding it hard to do the work. Half the questions are basically, how do I get my kid to do this? And it's like, well, I can tell you how to get your kid to do this. But the collateral damage of that is pretty ugly. What we're really talking about is not how do we get our kids to work hard, but how do we get our kids to want to work hard, right? How do we want them to want to develop their academic abilities or sports or community service or whatever it is that we think matters in the world? And it turns out, thank gosh, there's actually an equation for this. <laughs> it's called self-determination theory. And it's one of the most supported models in all of psychology. And it holds that for me to have inner drive, to autonomously motivate, to, to want to want to do this thing, I need a sense of competency. So I need to be good enough, right? I may need more tutoring if I really struggle in math. I, you know, I, I don't want to be in the tennis team if I don't even know how to hold the racket. So kids who are struggling with their skills, we want to give them support. And we want mom and dad and teachers and everyone else to help but also that they need relatedness. The, the connection to teachers, this is part of the reason why school's been so hard this year, is that secret sauce of great teachers of side comments and smiles and giving people our attention. It's so hard to do with Zoom and teachers are exhausted and they're doing the best they can, but man, oh man, relatedness has kind of taken a, a kick in the teeth this year. And then the third piece is autonomy. That is, Bill said, I need to feel that this is my life. I am happy. I am grateful for your help, but I don't want to do this because you're telling me to do this. I want to feel like that I have agency, that I have autonomy, that I'm, I'm working on things that matter to me. And simply put, it's a three-legged stool. We need to have these things in balance. And it may vary a little bit from kid to kid, 
But the hard part for parents is we see the competency or incompetency or what we think we see of, of really in grades. But it's hard to measure how connected our kids feel to us. And it's hard to assess how autonomous they feel. And so we tend to undermine the relatedness and their autonomy by telling them, shouldn't you be doing your homework? Or if you don't do this, if those grades are terrible, I'm taking away your cell phone. And there's a chance that we've now used extrinsic motivators of punishments and maybe bribes to get kids to work on their competency. Awesome. Maybe better grades. Awesome. Except we've pretty much obliterated relatedness and autonomy. And then we wonder why kids don't want to work hard. And it's hard because having said all that, you can't make people want what they don't want. You can't make them not want what they do want. Pause the conversation right there. And we're going to continue having a conversation about how we actually let go and create self-determined children in another episode. So can you go ahead and say our signature sign off, which is have a great week, Smarties? Have a great week, Smarties. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Join us in the next episode. Have a great week. Okay.